Good morning, Four Corners Church, scattered and sheltering in place in and around Noonan. Uh, Last week, I began the sermon by describing to you how strange it was to be preaching in front of a camera at the church building. And of course, there were four guys there, but it was pretty much a camera. And if that was strange last week, how much more strange is this this week? I never thought I would be preaching in my bedroom and sitting down, but that is where we find ourselves. These are definitely strange times. And although we're not able to gather, uh, it is exciting at least to look into God's word together. As I mentioned in a short video last week, our objective during this time of not being able to gather is to focus the people of Four Corners Church on God's word. We know that God creates and sustains his church by means of his word. And so although we cannot gather during this time, we can center ourselves on the word to focus the people there. And the way that we're going to do this is by means of these videos each week. We're going to make available these videos that you can watch with your family on the Lord's Day on Sunday. So each week, as I said in that video last week, each week we will read the word, pray the word, sing the word, and preach the word. Last week we filmed from the church building, but this week In light of the recent shelter-in-place order, we have decided to make all of these videos available from home. And so what you're going to see are, you're going to see these various brothers who will be reading scripture and praying. Uh, And then you'll also see some singing videos of, of folks singing from their different homes, all coming to you from home. So from one home to another, I bring you greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this person our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we come to look at in detail in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. And so if you would please turn there with me, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. We are still in the very early stages of our series in Romans, and as we're going through the book of Romans as a church, we currently find ourselves in the greeting. And we're taking quite a bit of time to go through this greeting, which runs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. We're taking some time in this greeting because this is, this is really Paul setting up his letter to the Christians in Rome. And so we want to lay that good, strong foundation before we get into the remainder of the letter. So far, we've considered the man behind the letter in verse 1. And there, Paul says in verse 1, Paul, he introduces himself. The man behind the letter, he introduces himself as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And last week, we started looking at the message in the letter. And we get the message in verses two to four. So the title for today's sermon is The Message in the Letter, Part Two. Last week, Part One, and this week, Part Two. In verses 2 to 4, Paul introduces the gospel he preaches, which he has just labeled the gospel of God. And so we already, as I said last week, we already get some information about the message he preaches. It's the good news of God. It is good news of great joy, as the angels told the shepherds. It's good news of great joy, and it is from God. It does not originate with 
men. So it's labeled the gospel of God, and he introduces it to us, though, in more detail in verses 2 to 4. Last week, we saw that Paul has two main things to say about this gospel of God by way of introduction. Now, uh, I will reiterate the fact that this is just introductory material. Paul has so much more to say about the gospel, which he's going to say as he unpacks it in the course of his letter. But what we have is here Paul getting at the heart of it and introducing it to his readers. And so two main things that he has to say about this gospel of God. First, he says that it comes out of promise. So verse 2, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so it comes out of promise. Second, he says that it concerns a person. So verse 3, we find at the very beginning, concerning his son. So we already know where the gospel comes from. It comes from God. We know that it is good news, and we recognize that it comes out of many, many, many promises, many years of promises recorded in the scriptures, and that it concerns a person, his son. But what I want to do today in part two is look at the details of verses 3 to 4. So we, we, we just set up these verses last week by saying that the gospel concerns his son. It concerns a person. But I want to dig today in more detail into verses 3 to 4 to look much more closely at this person. Described at the beginning of verse 3 as God's son, and then at the end of verse 4 as our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we dig into these verses, verses 3 to 4, when we dig into the details about this person, we discover three things. And so here are the three points that will occupy our attention today, coming off of our second point from last week, that it concerns a person. And so here they are, the three things for this week, his line, his natures, and his exaltation. That's what will occupy our time this morning. And so let me just pause now and say this to all of us as we are going through this difficult time, stressful time, and and difficult in many different ways. Difficult uh, for some of us, uh, particularly financially. And for for most of us, this is just a very uncomfortable time. Uh, This distance that we have from the people we love, the people we care about. Uh, but also the the strain that this puts on our families in many ways. And, of course, the fear that uh, many have of getting this virus or of someone they love getting this virus. And so what one of the big things that I want you to get out of last week's sermon and then as we're coming into this week's sermon is we're going to look in detail at Christ. And what we do during a time like this is savor Christ. And let me say this to you. Talk to Christ. Are you talking to Christ as he is a living person? He is not just an idea. He's not just a, something that we, that we view from afar or someone whom we view from afar, but he is an intimate friend of sinners. He is a shepherd of his sheep. He is with us during this time, as I said at the end of the sermon last week. And so I just want to ask you, are you talking to this Christ? Hopefully today 
you'll get a better understanding, a deeper understanding of the Christ whom you call Savior, Friend, Shepherd, and Lord. So at this time, we're going to read God's Word together. And I would ask for you to look with me at Romans chapter 1, and we'll go ahead and read the entire greeting, which takes us from verses 1 to 7, as I said before. So here we are, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer, ask for his blessing on this time and ask that he will help us at home to be able to listen and follow. There's a lot of meat here today, so we will be in the weeds again, much like we were uh, over uh, Advent with Philippians 2. And so uh, I pray that our children will be able to to take in some of this, a lot of this, but that we'll be able to devote ourselves to this teaching from God's word. So let's let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing during this time. Our sovereign Lord, we praise your holy name. Who is God but you, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You reign supreme. You have always reigned supreme. You are the maker of heaven and earth. Every aspect of our lives is under your sovereign care. And Father, as we've been looking at these early verses in Romans, we've just had so much gospel material, so much to direct our minds and our hearts to the good news of Jesus. And here we are on Palm Sunday, unable to gather, delivering content from our homes And Lord, just uh, grieving this time of separation when all over the world there would be people gathering and as we think about Easter coming up, not being able to gather and to praise your name together, to celebrate the resurrected Christ. But Lord, we, we do this even now as we listen together to this sermon, as we read your word, as we meditate on your word together, we even now are reminded of the powerful message of the gospel, that Christ is risen and that it is this risen Christ whom we serve. We are his slaves. As Paul said about himself, we are his slaves and we follow him as our master, our Lord, our redeemer, our savior, the son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we want to extol him. We want to exalt him in our hearts. We want to exult in him. We want to be joyful. 
so many distractions we face right now, Lord. We pray that our hearts would be attuned to your spirit, that our hearts right now would be filled with joy, supernatural joy that comes from him, the Holy Spirit, the spirit given by the resurrected, exalted, glorified Christ. Father, we pray that this time in your word would be edifying and that although it is delivered from home, seated, not normal, not the normal way that preaching occurs, not the normal way that the people of God come around your word, but God, nonetheless, that this would be a rallying point, that your word preached would be a rallying point for the people of God at Four Corners at this time. You would use this to feed us, to strengthen us, and to unite us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and we make three observations about three things to discover about this person whom Paul introduces to us at the beginning of verse 3. He is the subject and the content of the gospel of God. So we discover three things here. First, his line. So we have his line, his natures, and his exaltation. First, we're going to look at his line. So for Christians all over the world, Christmas and Easter are two very special times of celebration. And we think about this as a time of celebration. Of course, Good Friday, coming up next Friday, is a time of celebration, but somber celebration for what Christ did for us on the cross, but a recognition of the weightiness of sin and what sin costs. It costs death and that Christ took our sin and the penalty of death upon himself. He took the wrath of God upon himself at the cross. But this is a season of celebration. But I want you to see that these are also times of great instruction. There are times of celebration, Christmas and Easter, but they are also times of great instruction where our attention is drawn to the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. Probably at no other time in the year do we are we exposed to so many of the prophecies about Christ. Verse after verse and chapter after chapter are cited to show that the Christ of Christmas and Easter is the fulfillment of ancient Hebrew prophecy. And one of the things we consider during uh, times like this is whether, oh, what are our favorite prophecies, the prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament or the types and pictures of Christ that have impacted us the most. And I shared this past week in our gospel community group that probably the one that sticks out to me, to my mind the most is Christ as the Passover lamb. Very, very much relevant during uh, this time of year. But Christ as the Passover lamb, that the Passover lamb, the blood put over the doorpost, the blood put over the homes of God's people, the Hebrews enslaved in Egypt. A picture of Christ who would cover us and the wrath of God, the, the judgment of God would pass over us. But this is a time where we see so many of these texts highlighted, showing us that Christ fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. And that point was one of the major considerations that we covered last week, how the Old Testament is 
full of promises that are fulfilled or kept in Christ. And last week, what I wanted you to see is is just this general fact that in the New Testament, there is the emphasis that Christ fulfills the old, that the promises that are made in the Old Testament are shown to be kept in the New Testament. So I wanted you to see that last week in more general terms. But today we get greater specificity. Paul says in verse 3 that this promised person was descended from David. This is the language specifically that Paul uses coming out of the very general statement that he makes in verse 2. And of course, we know now that this takes us all the way back to Genesis 49. And it's, it's wonderful to be able to go from Genesis to Romans, to be able to see how much of what Paul has to preach in Romans can be traced all the way back to that very first book of the Bible. But this language of verse 3, that, that Jesus is descended from David, it takes us back to Genesis 49, where God promises that the future king of all the peoples of the earth will come through the line of Judah. And this goes back, of course, to Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, through Abraham's offspring, we come to see as Genesis unfolds. And now we see, when we come to Genesis 49, that that offspring will be king and he will be in the line of Judah. And as the Old Testament story continues, it will be another 800 years years before the promise resurfaces. And it comes to a shepherd boy turned king. Unexpectedly, it comes to the youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd boy who becomes king. His name is David. And David, 800 years later, is a descendant of Judah. And God comes to David specifically. And he makes a promise to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. This is what the Lord says to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So not just a a king will come from David, not just a great king will come from David, but the Lord promises David that he will will bring a king from his offspring and, and the Lord God will establish his kingdom forever. That means that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne of the world, and for that matter, of the universe forever. There will be no end to this king's kingdom. And this promise of a future anointed king, a future Christ, and Christ we remember means anointed one, comes from the Hebrew Messiah, and Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah, which simply means anointed one. So this promise of a future anointed king or a future Christ in the line of David, 
is something that gets picked up all throughout the prophets. And it is repeated among the Old Testament prophets. So for example, I just want to give you two from two of the more well-known prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, he says this about this future king. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. So Isaiah, writing several centuries after David, is explaining that this one who will sit on this unending throne, this un- over this unending kingdom of peace, will be on the throne of David. That is, he will come from the line of David. And then we have in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So here we see the language of offspring being like a tree with a branch, and that branch will come forth from David, that offspring of David. He will reign as king. He will deal wisely. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And what Paul is saying, as we come here, the very introduction, the very first words of Paul's most famous letter to the Romans, what Paul is saying here is that this promised offspring, this promised branch of David has come. This particular person, From this particular line, going all the way back to Abraham, going all the way back to the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and coming down through Judah and through David, this one has come, the Christ, the anointed and promised king over all has come. He is, verse 3, descended from David. So what does this say to us? This is what we are, one of the the aspects of this text that we are meant to glean. We're to understand that Paul is is emphasizing this, uh, these series of promises that are through the line of David. But what does all of this say to us, especially during a very strange and fearful time like this? Well, first, we recognize that only a sovereign God could do this. It's amazing when we sit back and think that God has been carrying out his plan for thousands of years. And we kept this before us as we were going through Genesis. We kept seeing how God was orchestrating the events of the patriarchs. He was orchestrating all of of the events of their lives to carry out his plan purposes, that God was able to even turn the sins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and Jacob's sons, he was able to turn even their sins for good and to carry out and accomplish his purposes. When we get to the New Testament, we see Matthew 1 and Luke 3, these genealogies of Jesus, and behind these genealogies of Jesus are many events many stories, many tragedies, many good times and bad times, 
thousands of years of history, we see that only a sovereign God could do such a thing. Only a sovereign God could protect a line that would lead all the way from Adam and Eve through Abraham, through Judah, through David to the Christ, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. The God who did all of this is the God whom we pray to now, our Father in heaven. He's the God we pray to now if we've lost our job. He's the God we pray to now if money is drying up. He's the God we pray to now if we get sick or someone we love gets sick. He's the God we pray to now, regardless of what the stock market is doing, regardless of what is happening in the news, God reigns supreme. He is sovereign. And if he can carry out his purposes over thousands of years to bring about his Christ through the line of David, he can take care of us through these uncertain days. So I think that's one implication for us here. A second implication is that if God kept his promise to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, he will most certainly keep his promises to us. We can be assured in a time like this that the Lord is with us, that he will not leave us nor forsake us, that he is present to give us strength through every trial, whatever may come for each of us listening to this sermon, meditating on these words. We are reminded that the God who kept his promise to David will most certainly see us through we will inherit eternal life. We do have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us. It is imperishable. It is unfading and no one can take it away. And as Christ says in John 10, he has us in his hand. No one can snatch us from his hand and no one can take us from his father's hand. And as he says at the end of Romans 8, as Paul says at the end of Romans 8, nothing or no one, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's promises to us as his children are secure. Good days and bad days, hard times and easy times, come what may, God is faithfully with us. So we see first his line, Christ's line. But now we come to his natures, Christ's natures. So what else does Paul want his readers to know about this person? This person about whom he is preaching and writing, this person who was promised in the Old Testament as a whole and who came specifically through the royal line of David. What else does the apostle here want us to know? What what else does he want to say by way of introduction for his Roman readers. Well, he wants us to understand that Christ has two natures. Not one, but two. Yes, as we just saw, there is a there is great historical or prophetic uniqueness to Christ. 
But there is also great ontological uniqueness and significance to Christ. The person of Christ is much like a diamond. From every angle, you get a different facet of the glory and splendor of this Christ. And up to this point, looking at last week's sermon and this week up to this point, we've seen that facet of Christ's person that looks at his historical and prophetic uniqueness, that he's the promised one. He Going all the way back to Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and Genesis 49 and 2 Samuel 7, throughout the prophets, he's the promised one, the historical and prophetic significance of this Christ. But there is also great ontological uniqueness and significance to his person. By ontological, I mean in terms of his being. And the significance and the uniqueness of Christ in this respect is that he has two natures. First, he is human. He has a human nature. That's why Paul says here in verse 3, that he is descended from David according to the flesh. And flesh here is referring uh, simply to his humanity. Christ has a human body and soul just like us. And that's one thing we must consider is Christ did not just take on human flesh as though he just has a human body. Christ also has a human soul. He is fully human. He is truly human as our human redeemer. He grew tired, we read in the Gospels. He wept. He suffered. We see that in many respects. And ultimately, he died in our place. Christ was and is truly and fully human. He has a human nature. And I want us to think on this for a moment. There are many ways in which this encourages us, but I want to go just for a moment to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, as we think about the implications of this fact for us, that Christ has a human nature. In Hebrews 4, 15, we are told that on account of having our nature, He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And he goes on to say that this is because he knows our temptations. And I just want to say this to you, people of God, Christian, listen to this. Christ sympathizes with us in our weaknesses during this time. You know, times like these, difficult times have a way of exposing our sins, I was recently, uh, I've recently explained to some, some brothers at the church that it's during a time like this, my wife being pregnant in her first trimester was really hard for her. She gets very, very sick and bedridden for a long time. And it was during that period as she was bedridden, she's feeling a lot better now, but it was during that time that I got to see a lot of the, the muck in my heart, a lot of the selfishness and sin in my own heart. Sometimes the difficult things that we face have a way of drawing out our weaknesses and our sin and showing us really what's inside of our hearts, things we did not see before. We see in moments like these, our weaknesses and areas in which we are easily tempted and in which we easily fall. And it's in times like these that the human nature of Christ that he was fully like us and is fully like us. And as our intercessor in heaven, as our high priest, 
He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. It's in times like these that we take great comfort from knowing that Christ, though sinless in every way, has walked this road with us. But second, we see, in addition to him being human, we see that he is God. He is called here at the beginning of verse 3, his son, concerning his or God's son. And that is why he has to qualify his comment that Christ is descended from David according to the flesh. When Paul says that Christ is descended from David according to the flesh, if he were merely human, if he were merely descended from David, and that encompassed his entire person, that was all there was to say about Christ, then there would be no need to say according to the flesh. But Paul wants to qualify this by saying according to the flesh, telling us that there is more to Christ than that. Paul will later uh, describe this again in chapter 9, verse 5 of Romans, where he will describe Jesus as coming through the patriarchs. But then he will also say that he is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In Romans chapter 9, verse 5. So yes, he is fully human. He is truly human, but he is fully God. And he is truly God at the same time in the same person. This eternal son is the second person of the Trinity through whom God made the world and whom he sent into the world to become man and redeem sinners. That's an amazing thought that through the son, God made the world. And then it was the son whom he sent into the very world that he made. And this is the re, this is the logic of that opening chapter, which we looked at a couple of advents ago. We looked at the prologue to John's gospel, those, those first 18 verses in the gospel of John, that the one who made the world came into the world. And we see this, this language of the son making the world or being the one through whom God made the world and the one who entered the world. We see this throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you a few places. So Hebrews chapter one, verse two, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son through whom he created the world. Colossians chapter one, verses 13 and then 16, uh, he is referred to as the beloved son or his beloved son by whom all things were created. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this, of course, is similar to what we find in Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 3, where Paul speaks of God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And the reason I want the reason I want it to be very clear that Christ has always been the son, that's what I'm getting at here, is that Christ is is human and he is God and he has always been the son. He was the son at creation. He was the son through whom God made the world and he was the son whom God sent into the world to become man. The reason that I want to make this so clear 
that Christ has always been the Son, is because of what we find in verse 4, which may seem strange to us as we encounter it. So this brings us to our final point this morning, and that is his exaltation. So as we're considering Paul's message, the gospel of God, we recognize that this gospel concerns a person. That was the second point from last week. But now as we dig into that second point a little further, we see three things about this person. We see his line, his natures, and now we come to our third point for today, his exaltation. His line, his natures, and now his exaltation. So look with me at verse 4 as we finish up this morning. Verse 4, And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There are two main things that make this verse difficult to interpret. First, what we have here, as I I said last week in quoting John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, what we have here are a number of very meaty phrases that are packed closely together, or you could could say they're, they're folded together or stacked up on each other. Lots of, of meat packed into a very small space. And we see Paul do that in other places. And we also see John and Peter do the same as well. There's a lot uh, to the gospel and a lot to understand about Christ. And so a lot of meat packed in here. And that's part of the reason that this verse is difficult to interpret. Another reason that it's difficult is that the word for declared, which we get at the very beginning, should actually be translated appointed or designated. That is the that is the most responsible way exegetically to translate this word because this is how the Greek verb is used throughout the New Testament. That it should be appointed. So he was appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'll say it this way. We are told here in this verse that Jesus was appointed Son of God in power by or at his resurrection from the dead. But how can this be if he was already the Son of God? And that was one of the reasons I quoted those texts before is to show you that, that Christ was already the Son of God before he became man. He was already the Son of God before he was resurrected from the dead. And we see this throughout the gospel. He, he, throughout the gospels, he calls God my father. We see God speaking to him as son at the baptism and the transfiguration. We see demons calling him the son of God. So we know that he is already the son of God. How is it that Paul can here say that he was appointed the son of God at his resurrection. How can that be? Well, in order to understand this, and I think this is where we're going to get down in the weeds a little bit, but it's important that we do this so that we can understand what Paul is is teaching his readers here and, and, and what he's teaching us, what the Holy Spirit through Paul is trying to teach us. So there are three main passages that help us to understand what Paul is saying here. And there are others 
But as I understand that these are three that help us, I think, best to come at what is meant here by Christ being appointed Son of God at his resurrection. So here they are, three texts to help us get at this difficult text as we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So first, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And this comes from the mouth of Peter. Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and this is what Peter says. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Catch that. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And if you go back a little bit and look at the previous verses, you look at what Peter has said prior to verse 36, Peter is saying that at Jesus's resurrection and at his being seated at God's right hand, he is now made Lord and Christ. In other words, Jesus's exaltation to this particular place or position or status flows out of the resurrection. There is something historically, redemptive historically significant about the resurrection which initiates this particular position or status, if you will. This is the language as commentators have tried to come at this, this is the language of being installed or instated or established in a particular office and with a particular status. So yes, of course, as we think about Peter's words here, Jesus was Lord and Christ before his resurrection. I, we would all say that. He was, he was Lord and Christ and King at his birth. Remember when he was just a, maybe a couple years old, the wise men come and bow down to him as what? As the King of the Jews. Peter's confession is you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he's already the Lord. He is already the Christ before his resurrection. But what Peter is saying here is that the resurrection marks Christ's exaltation to this position of authority as the enthroned God-man and descendant of David. It is as the enthroned God-man that Christ stands as Lord and Christ. And that is why Christ says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, After his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that's the first passage that we have to get to in order to understand what Paul is doing here in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 4, as he introduces his gospel and the subject of his gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. A second text that is very important for understanding this is Acts chapter 13, verses 32 to 33. Now, this time we're looking at the preaching of the Apostle Paul. We have there in Acts 2 Peter. Here we have the words of Paul in Acts. And this is what he says. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, listen to this language, by raising Jesus, the resurrection, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, Today I have 
begotten you. So thinking about the resurrection and Jesus being son of God, appointed son of God and the resurrection and the relationship between the two of these. Here, Paul quotes from Psalm 2. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. And what Paul is saying is that this begetting event, this coronation, if you will, this coronation event, this enthronement event is associated with the resurrection. So hopefully that helps to make some sense of what's going on here. And that ties back in with what we see in Acts 2. But I want to bring you a third text. Finally, we come to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. As I promised last week, and as I uh, introduced last week, I think Philippians 2, 5 through 11 as a whole, is really one of the key parallel passages for understanding what Paul is doing in verses 3 to 4, but verse 4 in, in particular, uh, especially with the end of, of that passage in Philippians. There, in Philippians, Paul describes Christ humbling himself by becoming man and going to the cross. Christ is described as one with God in the form of God, but he counts that as no advantage and he humbles himself taking the form of a servant and going even to the cross even or even to death, even death on a cross. And what we read in verses 9 through 11 comes out of that submission and obedience and servanthood that we see at the cross. Verses 9 to 11, we see what happens next. Philippians 2, therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is what we have. The second person of the Trinity became man in weakness and humility. But he has now been exalted in power. He comes first in humility and in weakness. We see this in the manger scene. We see this as Jesus moves around with these 12 disciples. We see this as he comes from Nazareth. We see this as he is homeless. He describes he has no place to, to lay his head. We see this at the cross, crucified naked between two thieves. We see him being mocked from every angle. He comes first in, in this humility, in this weakness to pay the price for sinners, to bear the wrath of God on the cross. But he has now been exalted in power. He is now, as Paul says here in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, the Son of God in power. Or you could, you could think of this as the Son of God, the powerful Son of God. God. So what Paul is getting at, what Paul is getting at here is that this Lord Jesus Christ, whom he preaches, is the exalted descendant of David. He has gone to the cross. He has accomplished our salvation. And now he reigns as the powerful son of 
God. To use Peter's language, made Lord and Christ. To use Paul's language, appointed Son of God in power. Now he pours out his Spirit into his people. The same Spirit by whom he was raised from the dead. As we see here, the same Spirit who now characterizes this age of redemption and new creation. So if we could paraphrase verse four, hopefully I have not lost you yet at this point, but let me bring you back with all of that support for what it is I'm trying to say here about uh, this verse as we try to unpack this or unfold this. I want to give you a paraphrase based on all that I've said of verse four. He was appointed or designated the powerful son of God at his resurrection from the dead in accordance with the working of the Holy Spirit. I want to close this morning with a few parting observations or implications just on this last point, his exaltation. First, I want us to remember this as we turn our computers off or our phones or our iPads, whatever we're listening to this on, as we walk away from this video recorded sermon, I want us to remember first this great implication of what we see here. Christ lives. Christ is alive. He is not just uh, a historical person. He's not just a a story. He's not just a, a, a great figure that attracts adoration. Christ is living. He is alive right now. And he lives in glory. And so will you, Christian, just as sure as Christ now lives, you will live with him in glory. First Corinthians fifteen twenty, the Lord Jesus is called the first fruits of those who are raised. He's he's the first. His resurrection is assurance that we will be raised, that the new age has come, the age of the spirit, the age of new life, that new creation has dawned, the kingdom has come, and Christ reigns alive. And we too, though we will die, who knows from what and who knows when, but we can look death right in the face and we can say, I will live just as sure as Christ lives. Second implication that we need to see from this last point, as Paul ends this verse, our Lord Jesus Christ reminds us That the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, he is over all. He owns us. He possesses us. Jesus, Savior, the one who saves his people from their sins. Christ, the anointed one. He's ours. He is ours. The one through whom all the, the families of the earth are blessed is ours. The one who crushed and will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. He's ours. The one who brings that kingdom of peace and righteousness 
that the prophets talk about. He's ours. The one who is with us every moment of our lives. Nothing, nothing can come against us in which Christ is not present to his people. He is our precious Redeemer and Savior, our exalted Lord. So I pray that you will commune with him during this time, very intimate ways, that you will immerse yourself in his word, talk to Jesus, walk with Jesus, be with Jesus, for this is what we will do for eternity, is be with Christ. Remember the farewell discourse, the gospel of John, the the real issue that Jesus is facing in his disciples, the the reason they're so downcast and and the reason they are so sad is because they're going to be without him. And Jesus assures them in that farewell discourse that this is farewell for a time, but he will come back and he will gather us to himself. We commune with him now by his spirit, but one day we will commune with him in our resurrected bodies, bodies made like his, to live in a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity. A third implication for us as we close this morning is that his power, the powerful Son of God, his power is in us and among us by his Spirit, by the Spirit of holiness, by the Holy Spirit. Power to live this life. The power to fight temptation. The power to endure trials. The power to to do what it is he's called us to day in and day out. The power to bear fruit and to love others. Power to believe in tough circumstances. That power to overcome sin, that power to overcome Satan is in us by the spirit of this exalted Lord who has been made Christ and Lord and appointed Son of God in power. His spirit is with us, in us. So verses two to four, that is how Paul chooses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to introduce the gospel that he preaches. The most extensive introduction we have in a greeting to to the gospel that he gives in his most famous letter. This is how he chooses to introduce the gospel that he preaches, the good news of God. Much like Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, Paul takes us from heaven to earth and back to heaven again. He takes us from incarnation to resurrection glory, all foretold by the Old Testament prophets and recorded for millennia in the Holy Scriptures, all centered on one person, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus. Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege we have to read 
meditate upon, preach, and hear preaching of the Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Scriptures as the fulfillment of the ages, the fulfillment of all promises, has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, what glory. What amazement we ought to have. What awe we ought to have as we consider this Christ. His glory and suffering and his resurrection glory reigning in power over all. He is supreme over this time. He is supreme over our souls. And God, we thank you that he is ours. Help us, Lord, these days and all the days of our lives to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to set our minds on things above where Christ is, to meditate on your word day and night, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly for your glory and our good as we anticipate the day when all will be made well, all will be perfect. The creation will be, as it was in Genesis 1.31, very good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.